The idea that um, the four canonical gospels, there are four canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but as I mentioned, there are many, many other gospels that were written, many gospels. Um, I mentioned uh, the Gospel of Thomas. Um, there's one I think I may have mentioned, if not, I'll repeat it or tell you. Uh, this is just to get another example. Uh, it's, the, it's the Arabic Gospel of Jesus. It's very, very short. Um, and basically, Jesus is um, a little bully in a neighborhood, the neighborhood of Nazareth. And he bullies his buddies. So one day he comes out of his house to go see his friends, and his friends are at the end of the street, and they see him, and they all run away from him because he's a bully. And um, they go into a house and they throw themselves into a furnace. Uh, Jesus comes into the house and asks the parents where Jesus, where the kids are, his friends are. He goes over to the furnace and he opens it and sees the kids in there and turns them into goats. And then uh, the parents complain to Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph uh, tell him he has to turn the little kids back into little kids. And um, he goes over to the furnace and opens the door and all the little goats jump out of the furnace. And then he turns them back into his friends. And that's the end of the gospel. Um, there's another gospel where Mary is washing the baby Jesus and she opens a window to go throw out the water in the basin and there's a black sheep passing by and she throws it out and turns the black sheep into a white sheep. So, again, there are a lot of these Gospels. So, during this time, there's a picture of the Gospel of Thomas. Well, by the time we get from first-generation Christianity, the idea of Jesus is coming back is, is still hell. In fact, even St. Paul uh, writes that uh, in First Thessalonians, you know, people came to believe in Jesus Christ and then people started dying. But he was preaching, St. Paul was preaching that Christ would come back. So the Thessalonians are concerned that, um, you know, uh, Aunt Janice or, uh, you know, Uncle Bert, they died and they're not going to see Jesus when he comes back. So Paul reassures them uh, in First Thessalonians that, in fact, they're going to be the first people to see Jesus. And then he gives us uh, this, this little paradigm and you have to listen to it because it, it has a, uh, a sequential element to it, a time, a temporal element, and then a geographical element or physical element. So St. Paul explains to the Thessalonians, he says, first of all, and of course if there's a first, there has to be a second. He said, first of all, so this is where the, uh, the uh, sequential element is. First of all, Jesus is going to be in the heavens and he's going to descend from the heavens on the clouds. Uh, that's the geographical element. And he's going to be, he's going to descend with uh, the angels and they're going to be blowing, blowing trumpets. You know, Jesus is coming, look busy. Jesus is coming, look busy. So, then he says, St. Paul tells the Thessalonians, and then the deceased, those who are dead, you know, Aunt Janice and Uncle Bert, grandma and grandpa, they are going to rise from the dead and meet Jesus in the sky. 
And you have to listen closely because Paul says, and then we, the living, meaning he, in his mind, he's going to still be alive when Jesus comes back. Then we, the living, will, the third part, it will be taken up to meet Jesus. So don't worry about, you know, grandma and grandpa who have died believing in Jesus. They're going to see Jesus before we do. And of course, we're still waiting for that return. So, as Paul is moving around his three journeys, um, establishing communities in Thessalonica, uh, Ephesus, uh, the areas of Galatia, Rome, um, the personal letter of, of Philemon, he's establishing these communities and it's establishing uh, different ministries as well. And so the church starts to become a little more institutionalized. Um, but remember, in these areas, they were meeting in house churches, meaning that the communities weren't large. They were very small, in fact. And that each community had its own gifts and graces. And sometimes they had their difficulties. So as Paul is trying to preach Jesus Christ, he's preaching it from the point of view that, he, first of all, he never met the earthly Jesus. He never knew the earthly Jesus. He only knew the resurrected Christ as a revelation on his road to Damascus. So he doesn't know the earthly Jesus. The apostles, um, when he meets them, he comes to an agreement. Um, but he has his own particular view of Christ. It's called the Pauline Christology, his view. The apostles and disciples who knew Jesus, they traveled with Jesus, so they experienced his teachings and what he thought and how he thought, and his miracles, uh, his passion, death, and resurrection. So it's going to be two different perspectives. But remember, Paul has his three missionary journeys, writes his letters to the communities, is arrested. We, we saw today about the idea of he probably was imprisoned in Caesarea uh, Maritina and then brought to Rome where he is eventually uh, martyred. But that happens all before the first gospel is written. And so as the Christianity goes into the second generation now, um, what happens is you have some of these uh, apocryphal, they call them apocryphal gospels, like uh, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel about the, uh, the Arabic gospel. And some of them just aren't true. And so what happens is that um, as they're going into this second stage of the preaching, because the first stage is Jesus Christ, uh, his own earthly life, passion, death, resurrection, ascension. The second phase is the preaching. And that's where the apostles are preaching, Paul is preaching, um, and it's an oral stage. We begin the written stage with Paul when we move into the third stage. But the reason the Gospels were written was, first of all, there are numerous reasons. One was the Gospels were written as a corrector to the erroneous teachings about Jesus. So they want to make sure that they were correcting these erroneous Gospels. Uh, a second reason was that they... Uh, that first generation was dying out so in order to pass on the teachings and the miracles and the life of Jesus they write the gospel another reason they do it is uh, they need to teach in terms of a, as a kind of a catechism about who Jesus was the, the, the 
refer to as the Jesus event, which is again his birth, passion, death, life, miracles, resurrection, ascension. Another reason the Gospels are written is that it hands on to us liturgical teachings and rituals. I mentioned about the road to Emmaus being the idea of the Eucharist, uh, baptism, uh, the idea of marriage. So there are the, the what becomes the teachings of the church. So there's a liturgical element to the writing of the Gospels. Um, so. So all of these reasons kind of coalesce and always remember under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God is considered the primary author of all scripture and then the writers are considered the secondary authors. That is, God used the authors, whether it was writing the Hebrew scriptures, um, handing on the law, the, everything from the Old Testament, or the New Testament. So we move into the phase where we've got these Gospels. And it's the written stage, which is considered the third stage. The difficulty was that um, which ones were considered, you know, inspired. Now, it's kind of a long process, but I'll try to be as brief. Basically, these writings rose out of particular uh, uh, communities. So these communities, wherever they were, uh, these writings were passed on to the next generation and then the next generation. As I mentioned, there are four Gospels because there are four different perspectives. Uh, so that's, that's, that's how the Gospels came about. The difficulty that sometimes we have is we have to ask the question, uh, did Mark, since Mark was not an apostle, probably maybe a disciple, where did he get the material? In other words, where does he get his material for his Gospel? And the material comes from, um, in the case of Mark, the tradition is that uh, St. Peter gave him the basic information. Now that's, that's very traditional. It's probably a little more complicated than just Jesus. Because, for instance, say the story of Na the, the widow of Naim. Well, when Jesus goes through Naim and he cures the son, those people didn't necessarily get up and start following Jesus. So you have these little what we call Jesus traditions in these different communities. When Jesus uh, healing Peter's mother-in-law, uh, you know, again, at Peter's house, um, it wasn't that his mother-in-law left everything and followed Jesus. So you've got all, when Jesus makes his way around Capernaum, Cana, uh, the different areas, the Decapolis, not everyone followed him, but because of his influence and because uh, he teaches with authority, you may have Jesus traditions up in Galilee that weren't necessarily Jesus traditions down in Jerusalem. Uh, the traditions of Jesus in Nazareth, you know, the idea of you know, bringing him to the precipice and wanting to throw him off. And so in these different communities, you have these Jesus traditions. And what happens is, and again, uh, there's some things we just cannot answer. We just don't have the information. So we're going to have to ask when we get on the other side, is this what happened? All of these Jesus traditions are being collected and they're being put together. And the, uh, in terms of the written gospel. Now I want to read it. So we've got the different authors, Matthew, Matt, Matthew Mark, Luke, and John. Um, 
is Matthew the tax collector? Tradition has it that he is. But, you know, in reality, it, I mean, it really doesn't make any difference. Um, is John the beloved disciple? Uh, John was considered very young, probably when he was following Jesus. So it could have been a possibility that he did. Luke just tells us he was not an apostle. I mean, he wasn't an apostle, but he tells us he wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus. Hold us just a second. first chapter of Luke's Gospel. Listen closely. The Gospel according to Luke. This is what Luke writes starting in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, again, he's telling us, there have been many attempts. All those Gospels I'm talking about we call apocryphal, which means that they were not inspired. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were, now listen to this, just as they were delivered to us by those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. In other words, he's telling us he was not an eyewitness. He tells us very clearly they've been handed on from the original eyewitnesses to us. So he's telling you that he was not an eyewitness. He was not a disciple that traveled with Jesus. Um, probably maybe didn't even know the earthly Jesus. Um, but he also says, you know, there were eyewitnesses who from the beginning. But he also mentions this, and it's, 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 uh, it becomes a technical phrase. Among, as a biblicist, I consider this a technical phrase. And those who were ministers of the word, in other words, there were those that, that was considered a ministry, ministers of the word. Who were they? Was it a particular uh, group of people that were considered the ministers of the word that would be handing on the different tradition, Jesus stories or Jesus traditions or those who maybe were now interested in collecting those? It, verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, almost Theophilus. So he's saying that he's going to put some order into these different accounts. And then he's writing it to this person, Theophilus. Now, Theophilus comes from two words in Greek, theos, meaning God, and philios, meaning lover. So somehow hold that there really wasn't a person called Theophilus. It's written to anyone who's a God lover. And there are those who hold that, no, it probably is a real person, especially since he refers to him as most excellent Theophilus, you know, like your majesty, your, you know, your excellency, your eminence, whatever. That you may know the truths about the things, uh, concerning the things of which you have been informed. So when it comes to the idea of the authors of the evangelist in terms of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, sometimes we, we, we think pretty, feel pretty close about uh, or, or accurate about, like Luke, we, he tells us. Uh, John, again, if we refer to the idea of jo the Johannine community, 
that put together the gospel. Uh, could have been written by one person. It could have been very easily written by one person. Uh, but it probably, again, was a collection of events um, from the community itself. Mark, we're really just not sure of. We think it was, uh, you know, uh, Mark was a disciple of Peter. That's high speculation. Matthew's gospel is an interesting gospel because if you notice in our Catholic tradition, we take a lot out of Matthew's gospel. For instance, you only have the Beatitudes in Matthew and Luke. Matthew, you have eight Beatitudes. Luke, you have four. We use the one from Matthew. Matthew has uh, the Our Father, and Luke has the Our Father. We use the Our Father from Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 25, the third parable, you know, when Jesus comes to separate the sheep from the goats, um, those are called uh, the corporal works of mercy. We later add on bearing the dead, but the reality is that the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew was called the Gospel of the Church in the early church because we used, the church was using so much of the teachings from uh, Matthew's Gospel. It was probably in the early church the most popular Gospel, and that's probably why it's, made, it's put first, because it was the most popular Gospel used by uh, the church. Um, there are those who uh, will quote uh, from the early fathers the idea that Matthew's Gospel was written first in Hebrew, that's not really what is said in the text. In the text that refers to that, the term is used, it's written in Greek. The Matthew's Gospel is written from a dialectikos uh, semitikos, meaning a Semitic dialect. Well, it could have been a Semitic dialect like Aramaic or Hebrew, but a di uh, dialectikos also means style that it's written from a Hebraic or Semitic style, which it is. Matthew's Gospel is very Semitic in, in style. Um, as I mentioned, the, the idea of blessings and curse uh, is just one example. The idea that in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew doesn't have to explain a lot of the Hebrew traditions. It's just presupposed that you know it. It would be like this. If I'm talking to a Baptist community, Southern Baptist, and I tell them, next week is Ash Wednesday, and you have to come to church and get ashes. Are they going to know what I'm talking about? No. In other words, I have to explain it to them. In Mark's Gospel, he explains a number of the Semitic, the Hebraic, uh, Jewish traditions. He gives literally an explanation. Matthew Gospel gives no, absolutely no explanations. Luke's Gospel was written for, for Gentiles. Father uh, uh, Rimmick asked me earlier today about the idea of uh, touching the uh, you know the body of a deceased person. Was Jesus would Jesus have to go through purification ritual? Because according to Jewish law, if uh, you touch a dead body, then you have to you're not impure. You have to go through purification rites. The difficult, the, the, but the, the, since Luke's gospel is written, and it, since Luke's gospel is written only to Gentiles, they wouldn't have been concerned about, or maybe even knew about, Jewish purification rites. So it wasn't a concern of theirs. 
So the two examples I use in saying that it wasn't important for Luke to explain Jesus being ritually impure for touching dead bodies is that the story about the, you know, the widow's son, uh, Naim, nothing about him being impure. And also when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan touches what is considered to be a dead body. But there's no sense of, in, in any record in the parable of him having to go through purification rites. Uh, and both of those incidents are only found, only found in Luke's Gospel. Again, it was not a concern of that community about Jewish purification or uh, purification rites. So there's no concern. There's no there's no mention. Um, a lot of times we just and I I, I probably have been you know uh, presupposing a lot of times when I talk that you would understand what I'm talking about in terms of you know a Joe and I perspective or a Mark in perspective or a Luke in perspective or a Pauline perspective. So, and all that means is that they're writing to their community from their perspective about who Jesus Christ is and about belief in Jesus Christ. A lot of also the issues when you get to the gospel is they're dealing with second, third, even maybe fourth generation Christians. So the issues what John is, is using, is addressing, may not have been the actual issue that Jesus actually had to address. But the evangelist used the incidents from Jesus' life to answer contemporary questions today. For instance, if you're, say your grandmother's still alive, or you know, your mother or father, and they know nothing about uh, Facebook, you know, if you start talking about Facebook, it wasn't an issue in their time. It is now. You know, if you're complaining, you know, my kids are spending too much time on, you know, inside doing video games. That was an issue 25, 25 years ago. Didn't exist. Uh, my cell phone, you know, is dead. 25 years ago, it wasn't a concern. Now we have to address those issues um, because they're issues, and therefore we may use an example from our past life to address the issues today. That's what happens in the gospel. The evangelist will use the, act, the incidents in the life of Jesus to address issues in their community. What, in the Catechism for the Catholic Church, and I use this as an example to illustrate this, in the Catechism for the Catholic Church, there is a section on what they call palliative care, which means caring for those who are dying. Well, that wasn't in the, the Catechism of the Council of Trent because it wasn't an issue. Now it is an issue. And so in writing the New Catechism, you know, St. John Paul II puts a section in the New Catechism because it's an issue now that has to be addressed. That is exactly what happens in the Gospels, in that third phase, second, third generations. Uh, how are we going to preach uh, about the idea of, you know, the widows of the Jews versus the widows of the Gentiles. That becomes an issue that wasn't in Acts of the Apostles, which was not an issue at the time of Jesus. So that issue has to be addressed, and therefore, what would Jesus have said? Uh, and they use those examples for the life of Jesus to answer questions in their own community. Um, we do the same thing. We do exactly the same thing. When I teach homiletics, I tell the guys that I'm teaching, the folks I'm teaching, listen, 
you know, you're going to be doing the same thing the evangelist. You're going to be interpreting the Word of God, the Word of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament, the Word of God, to a community. You're going to be interpreting that. What does it mean in this community, in this particular time in our history, in this particular time in the history of the church or our culture? And, you know, some of the images you're going to be using are images that, you know, this community may understand, but past generations would not understand. You're going to be talking about cell phones or uh, video games. You're going to use those examples. Uh, which, again, some people, again, I tell the story that the deacons at the seminary would have to go to the, this cloistered community of nuns, and for a week they would preach Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday to give them the experience of preaching at daily masses before they're ordained. I'm down there one day with one of the seminarians, after Mass, we're in the car driving back, and he said, well, what did you think of my homily, Father, my singer? And I said, well, I mean, I thought it was okay. Um, <laughs> I said, but, uh, you know, you, you were talking, you were using as an example uh, this TV series. I said, the nuns don't have television. They don't have a clue what you're talking about. He said, they don't watch television? I said, they're cloistered nuns. No, they don't. I said, so the example you used just went over their heads. They didn't understand what you were talking about. In other words, you, you've got to understand the community that you're preaching to. You've got to understand what they're going through uh, to address them in light. And you interpret, we interpret our lives in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the, the Old Testament, New Testament, in terms of the Word of God. So, I don't know if there are any questions. I don't know if you're awake. Uh, uh, Monsieur, could you say maybe the passing on the memory, you know, like the 100, 200 years that is still... Oh, yeah. Yeah, one of the questions that comes up is, um, in terms of the traditions of the church, and again, this is, I, I personally, I think it's very important because we believe in our foundation is what? Scripture and tradition. And for us, Scripture and tradition... Uh, we don't go by just what they call solo scriptura, scripture alone. We base ourselves on scripture and tradition. Now, when it comes to tradition, um, and I'll use again a personal example, but if you could date something within about 200 years, then you probably have a very reliable tradition. An example, I bought my house as I've spoke to you some of you about from my parents my parents bought the house from um, my uncle Danny and Aunt Molly and I was raised by Aunt Molly you know Aunt Molly helped my mother raise us so they bought, the house is 125 years old I can point to that house and I know for a fact that it was built 125 years ago my parents bought it in 1950 I bought it in 2003 so I can tell you with reliability, this house has been in the tradition, and I know what the original house looked like, the design. Uh, I know what was added on. And so if you use that, if you can date something within about 200-year period, and that's what we do in terms of archaeology, that's what we do in terms of this, even this, this pilgrimage, of looking at these things and saying, we think that we've got pretty reliable evidence that this is where the prison was. Uh, in Caesarea. We've got pretty reliable information. 
Um, and so you can date things, even in terms of the traditions of the church, within 200 years, then you're probably talking about extremely reliable information. And so this idea of the traditions of the church, um, the passing on of these traditions, the idea that it's, uh, that it's probably extremely reliable when you talk about the idea, was uh, Mark a disciple of Peter? Again, there's, there's pretty good evidence of that. Um, and especially with the older church, or the early church, because, again, uh, as Yair has mentioned, you know, Christianity was not, uh, you couldn't practice it publicly. And so the idea of tra passing on these traditions uh, to keep the community alive, uh, again, those, those traditions are, are extremely reliable. Uh, some people want to dismiss them. Um, and you know, my perspective as a biblicist uh, and somebody who's very interested in things like archaeology and church traditions, it's like I give more credibility to the reliability of these traditions than I do to saying, oh, some people just made this stuff up. is how to do people take um, the scriptures more literally um, how do they deal with those issues of tradition no, the inconsistencies in the gospels yeah. oh what they do is it's interesting that they'll they will literally uh, and, and when you talk to them um, they'll they'll make a uh, scramble to the left or a scramble to the right uh, I'll give an example Jesus said you know uh, if your foot is your cause then for people who take the Bible literally cut it off you know if your eye is the source of your sin pluck it out if the hand is the source cut it off well you know what would a parish church look like you know a bunch of mutilated lame blind people running around uh, you know maybe with their tongues cut out and stuff like that so oh, not, not at San Jose not in San Jose because nobody gossips there, <laughs> including the pastor. I mean, uh, <laughs> so that's they, what they'll do is that then all of a sudden say, no, no, what Jesus meant is, and, and, then, and then all of a sudden they run to, it's not to be taken literally. Um, and that's what happens actually in the Eucharist. They'll say, oh, no, no, Jesus never meant this to be taken literally. And that's why biblicists, most biblicists who are educated today whether what no matter what tradition, most are going to say there are different literary genres in the um, scriptures. There's poetry. Uh, there's there's history contained in it, even though the, the uh, Bible is not a history book. Uh, there's there's music. Um, there's you know teachings. There's stuff to be taken literally. There are parables or sayings that are to be taken uh, sometimes allegorically. Um, so you have these different uh, sayings uh, or different what we call genres. Um, one genre, for instance, is uh, uh, what we call pronouncements by Jesus. And that means if he says, if, you know, if, if something's categorized as a pronouncement, that is a genre that's to be taken literally. I'll give you an example. Um, with the... Uh, you know, the, what Jesus says to the man, you know, in chapter uh, 
two, I think it's chapter two of Mark's gospel. Uh, he, he, the man, you know, is on a pallet, and he, Jesus says to him, uh, "Your sins are forgiven you." Uh, and everybody's saying, "Well, wait a second. The only one that can forgive sins is God. You're making yourself equal to God." And then Jesus says, "Which is easier to say, be healed, pick up your pallet, and walk, or..." Uh, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, and this is a pronouncement, that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your pallet and walk. And so you've got, in other words, Jesus is now with that idea of that tradition of the authority to forgive sins. But it goes even further in the New Testament. And the reason it goes further is because Jesus will say, especially in John's Gospel, but also in Matthew's Gospel. What sins, who sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. Who sins you shall retain, they are retained. So there's a progression uh, in the Gospels from the idea of God's the only one who can forgive. Now Jesus has the authority to forgive, and Jesus passes that authority on to the church. So you have this theological development on forgiveness of sins in the Scriptures. That's, again, that's a whole genre in and of itself, these pronouncement stories. No pronouncement, we call them pronouncements. Um, it's pronouncement sayings. So you have all these different type of genre, and a lot of times people, they don't want to hear it. They say, no, 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 it's, it's, I just want to take the Gospels literally. Or, um, you know, everything is of equal value in the Gospels. Um, and you know, there's it's equal value to the degree it's all inspired word of God. But, you know, if your foot is your the cause of your sin or your eye or your hand, pluck it out, cut it off. But then Jesus will also say, you know what? If you give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, just a cup of cold water, God will remember you. In other words, sometimes it's it, it's things that are serious, other times it's things that are very light. The idea of just, you know, your charity. God is not going to forgive charity. Uh, you know, we may struggle with the idea of forgiving someone because what they've done to us has been very egregious, been serious, and it hurts, it goes to the court. We can't let go of it. Uh, and we struggle with that, with maybe forgiveness. By the same token, the idea of something simple. A simple act of charity, a cup of cold water. What does it take to give a cup of water away? So when we're when you're dealing with the scriptures, you know you have to. Well, when you're reading and trying to apply it to your life, you have to look at it from the point of view of. That we use the phrase there are different genres that are there: sayings of Jesus, miracles, uh, uh, words of pronouncement sayings, which are, again are very very serious. Um, Incidents in the life of Jesus walking on the water. Uh, so the all different types of things in terms of how we approach the interpretation of the scripture. In the early church, there were two main schools of interpretation in the early church. The Antiochian, the meaning it was located in Antioch, um, and they took the scriptures much more literal. Now these were also, these two schools are pretty much framed within the context of the two schools uh, of interpretation on Judaism. And then the second was the idea of a allegorical interpretation. And that was located in Alexandria. And they would follow the philosophy of Plato. 
So for the Alexandrians, for instance, I'll give you an example, when it came to Adam and Eve, they would just say, it doesn't make any difference if Adam and Eve uh, were real people or not. Three of them. Because the story on Adam and Eve is just the idea of, it, it's an allegory for all of humanity, period. It doesn't make any difference if Adam and Eve existed or not. Then you have the school at Antioch saying, no, they, they literally existed because, you know, we take it literally. And the uh, people in Alexandria would go crazy. And so the people at Antioch would say, well, wait a second. If everything is allegorical, then when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, is it allegorical? If it's allegorical, then it's symbolic. There's no real presence with Christ in the Eucharist. The other thing is if uh, everything in the scriptures has a deeper meaning, it's allegory, what about the resurrection? Is the resurrection just an allegory? It didn't really exist, didn't happen? So you see, when you're dealing, when you're trying to be too categorical, um, too black and white, you end up getting in trouble. You really get, so the interpretation of scripture, um, you know, even St. Peter in his letter talks about the interpretation. He says, you know, when he writes about St. Paul, he says, sometimes we don't even know what Paul said. And I'm thinking, if you, you're St. Peter and you didn't understand what Paul said, where does it leave the rest of us? <laughs> I mean, it's like, what chance have we got in terms of the correct interpretation of Paul? So, it, um, and the church, and, and it's, I think it's, it's wisdom, I say this because I went to the school, it's wisdom established the Pontifical Biblical Institute to train men and women to be able to interpret the scriptures. And at least, you know, and St. Jerome says it best when he says, you know, the interpretation is difficult. It's very, very difficult to interpret scriptures. Not as easy as people think. Um, and so the church set up the Biblical Institute to train people in languages, cultural anthropology, archaeology, the history of the, the salvation history of the Old Testament, New Testament. Um, to try to address these very serious issues, especially in contemporary society. Yep. Okay. Thank you.